Jesus said, Man cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're listening to Daily Truth. They hate you because they hate Christ. And that's what Jesus says. The student is not above his teacher. The servant is not beyond his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Why? Because if you're my disciple, you'll look like me. Do you know why Christians are so inexperienced with persecution today? Because they don't look like Jesus. See, we actually think, we actually think that that, that we are being successful when the culture says good things about us. Do you know why they're saying good things about the evangelifish pastors of the world? Do you know why? Because they look nothing like Jesus. The world hates God. The Bible's clear. First John says this, the Gospel of John chapter 8 says that if you're not in Christ, if you haven't been born again by grace and faith in Jesus, you are not a child of God. You're a child of the devil. The devil is your daddy. And because he's your daddy, you look like him. Children bear a remarkable resemblance to their father. He was a liar from the beginning and a murderer from the beginning, which is precisely why the children of the devil in the day of Jesus were lying about Jesus, bearing false witness and seeking to crucify him, murder him. What are two primary ministries of Satan? Murder and deceit. And Satan's children, therefore, look like him. Murder and deceit. And so if the world, according to Jesus himself, hates Christ. They're not neutral. They're not just indifferent. We think the non-Christian is, the problem is that that they're ignorant. They don't know the things of God. And because of their ignorance, they have some rebellion. But the real problem is indifference. They're just not interested in the things of God. That is not the picture that the Bible paints. The Bible doesn't say that the problem with the pagan is that he is indifferent to the things of God. No, the Bible says the problem with the pagan is he hates the things of God. Right? Romans chapter 8 says this, the mind of the sinful man is hostile, not just uninterested, not just indifferent. The mind of the sinful man is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. It's not only unwilling, it is unwilling precisely because it's unable. It cannot submit to the law of God, not just because it's indifferent, but because it's hostile. It is at enmity with God and his truth. And Jesus promises us that because the world is not merely indifferent or uninterested or morally neutral, but actually in a state of hostility and hatred towards him, as much as we look like him, we will incur the same hatred ourselves. And in our incredible arrogance, American evangelicals have thought this. We have figured out how to do evangelism in such a way that it is faithful without compromise and yet simultaneously more effective than Jesus. They would never say it that way. But that is the implication. That's the assumption. The assumption is because because none of them will admit, right? None of them will admit, oh, the reason the world likes us is because we're compromising. Where, where, Where have you heard that sermon? Nobody says that. Nobody says, hey, in our church, we have people who don't know Jesus coming all the time. They feel right at home. They feel comfortable because we compromise. Nobody admits that. 
No, they, 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 they say, we're not compromising. And, but somehow we're pulling off this amazing feat that Jesus couldn't pull off. Right? Jesus, at the end of the day, you have, to, you have to keep this in mind. It's a bit of a spoiler for those who don't know the story of Jesus. He died. You don't crucify nice guys. Someone hated him. Hated him. Not just uninterested. We don't want to hear you teaching at the synagogue anymore. We're not just talking about people who are like, we don't like Jesus because he's boring. No, we don't like Jesus because we hate him. He is a threat to everything we hold dear. He threatens our whole agenda. Everything we want to do, he is endangering. We must kill him. I mean, that's what the high priest said. Better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation suffer. What they were saying is he, he is hurting people. He's destroying our way of life. He, he's, one of their concerns was this. That he claims not just to be a Messiah, he claims to be king. And if he claims to be king, see the Romans, here's the thing about the Romans in the days of Jesus that were overseeing Israel. Israel was basically at peace with the Romans. You know why? Because Israel believed in a private lordship of God. They believed, in essence, what evangelicals have believed for several decades, Jesus is Lord of my heart. Joe Biden doesn't care if Jesus is Lord of your heart because it doesn't threaten anything. Because if Jesus' lordship only knows the bounds of your, your sweet little heart and has no jurisdiction beyond it, then guess what? Guess what? Then you're not a threat to anything he wants. Because you know what Joe Biden doesn't care about? Your heart. But you know what he does care about? He cares about the market. He cares about socialism. He cares about bringing down certain institutions. He cares about legislation. He cares about laws. He cares about how many seats are on the Supreme Court. He cares about open borders. He cares about how many people will come in, not from Cuba because they might vote Republican, but from everywhere else. He cares about that. Which is, the point is this. He cares about all of life. And you know why evangelicals have been given this freedom to basically be be unencumbered, un unhindered, not persecuted for decades because we haven't posed a threat. The reason why we've gone on virtually unsinged by the world that the Bible clearly says hates God is because our religion poses no threat. You know why? Because it's not real. Our religion has been a fantasy religion. It has been a religion of theory, but not practice. A religion of heaven, but not earth. A religion of your private home, your private parenting, and your private sweet little heart, but not politics, not governments, not economics, not the world. And guess what? The enemies of God, you know what they care about? The world. And you know why they don't, they're not bothered by Christians? Because Christians for decades have proven time and time again that we don't care about the world. And let that be an indictment. Let judgment come and let it begin with the house of God. We need a real religion. A tangible religion. We need to repent of the heresy of Gnosticism that we've believed and promulgated for decades. This idea that, that it's all about the spiritual. 
No, let thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God made the world and he loves it. And he cares about it. And he wants to redeem it and save it and change it. And he is ruling this world. And he wants to usher in more and more of that rule and more and more of that kingdom through his church. But we won't do it. And all of a sudden, 18 months ago, what happened? The evangelical church in America hit a crossroads. And we split. Right? I I know you've sensed that. Have you not sensed that, that all of a sudden it's like the church in America split and half of it went one direction, half went the other? Half of it is still just in the ethereal, spiritual, let's be kind and love our neighbors, but it's really, really intentionally ambiguous. You never really know what that means other than getting a vaccine, right? So there's, there's, there's that group of evangelicals, just to name a couple names because it's helpful, and the Bible sets a precedence for naming false teachers. Russell Moore is a false teacher, and I used to like Russell Moore, but I feel perfectly comfortable saying he is a false teacher. Christianity Today is a false teaching organization. Beth Moore is a false teacher. There's no relation, but Beth Moore and Russell Moore, I don't know if it's just the the similarity in the last names, but they have teamed up. They love each other, and they love Satan and doing his bidding. They do. They absolutely do. May God perhaps save them and bring them to repentance? Perhaps. Could they possibly be saved and just rebelling against God and eventually come back? Perhaps. But listen, this is so important. John Harris helped me with this a couple weeks ago from Conversations That Matter. I think that there's, there's a hesitancy with Christians, and I've experienced this myself, and so this category really helped me. There's a hesitancy to, a hesitancy to label someone as a false teacher if we think there's a chance they might be regenerate, they might be saved. But that's not actually the way that the New Testament communicates. The New Testament doesn't say that we somehow have to have omniscient election goggles and know with certainty the status of someone's salvation before labeling them a false teacher. There there are individuals that Paul may have named like Hymenaeus and Alexander. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 18 through 20. I've handed these men over to Satan. They are false that they might be taught not to blaspheme. I tried to be their teacher, but when when someone in the church, in the visible church, proves again and again to be impenitent and to be rebellious after the elders of the church have spent patient, enduring time trying to tutelage, trying to tutor and teach them, then eventually the Bible says that if the elders' teaching won't work, then we hand them over to another teacher. His name is Satan. That their flesh might be destroyed so that their soul might be saved on the last day. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul talks about a builder who all he did was build with hay and stubble. And it's all going to be burned up. And he's going to suffer great loss. But he himself will be saved as one barely escaping flames. Right? By the skin of his teeth. So we have a biblical category. My point is we have a, a theological category for a, a person who ultimately in the end proves to be regenerate but was teaching false doctrine. And I think, I think part of the problem, at least I'll, I'll speak personally, part of my hesitancy in calling out some of these guys who are, who are deceiving the church and leading people astray is I, I just didn't feel comfortable naming them because I thought, but, but I really think this guy might be a Christian and is just off the rails. 
and, and, and I need to wait because God maybe will bring them back. But that's actually not a qualification or a prerequisite for labeling someone as a false teacher according to New Testament standards. It's not. So what do you need to know with certainty in order to call someone a false teacher? The status of their salvation? Whether or not they're regenerate? No. What you need to know in order to, to label someone a false teacher is if they're teaching false things. That's it. Are they teaching falsely? If so, then sound the alarm. Be the watchman on the wall. Warn the people that the enemy is at the gates and he is teaching falsehoods and that we should plug our ears and turn away. We're not making any statement about their salvation. Right? We're not being presumptuous. That is not a presumptuous statement. I'm not saying that Russell Moore is going to hell. I don't know. What I do know is he's teaching false things and leading others to hell. And that is enough cause for me to shout his name and say, don't listen. Do not listen to that man. So we have this break, this fork in the road, a year and a half ago, where half of the evangelical church goes one way, still wanting to carry water for the world, for the culture, for the political left, still wanting the praise of men, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, for they love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. We call it, in our day, the Gospel Coalition. We call it, in our day, Christianity Today. In our day, we, we, we call it about 70% of the SBC. And then, and then there's this other group that has gone the opposite direction. And guess what's happening with that other group? For the first time, really, I mean, in a real tangible sense, for the first time, there is, there is a subset of evangelicalism, a group of, of Christians that are actually being persecuted. Praise God. We don't ask for persecution, but when it comes, we do thank God. We have commandment after commandment in the scripture to thank the Lord for trials, difficulties, persecution, and suffering of all kinds because of what it produces, because of its fruit that it bears, a sweet Wonderful fruit that it bears in the life of the Christian. We're not masochists, sadists. We, we, we don't ask, like, God, please, please, I, like, would you please set up a providential scenario to where I would get thrown in jail? That's not a helpful prayer. But if you do get thrown in jail, then, then you have someone come and visit you and post some YouTube shorts, and your ministry blows up, and you thank the Lord. Right, persecution, the, the, right? The, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed for the church. The world doesn't get it. Right? Because what? They're children of their father, the devil. They follow the same mistakes he did. You know what Jesus, uh, what, what happened with, with the devil and Jesus? The devil, he literally thought that, that the very thing that he thought was the sealing of his victory proved to be his demise. When, when Jesus died and said, it is finished, the devil gave his shout of victory. And on the third day, he, in horror, 
he was shocked to find out how wrong he was. A divine trickery is what St. Augustine said. That Jesus was divinity wrapped in flesh. The the, the divine nature of Christ was the hook and his flesh was the bait. And Satan, seeing the flesh, the human nature of Christ, he bit down, thinking, this is my moment. God in heaven, who is infinite and invulnerable, invincible, I've never been able to achieve victory. I've never been able to win. And all of a sudden, God has stepped down into humanity. He has made himself vulnerable. He has taken on flesh. Now is my moment. He seized the opportune time, and he did not realize that under that bait, under that flesh, there was an iron hook, and it grabbed him by the jaw, and his doom was sealed. And in the very same way, so to the followers of Christ and the followers of Satan, children of God resembling our Father in heaven and children of Satan resembling the devil have followed the very same line of story, of narrative. That the world thinks, here's the victory. We'll lock James Coates in prison. And the people of God laugh and say, here's the victory. Hundreds of thousands of more followers online. Thanks. I mean, sometimes I'm jealous. I'm like, could I get thrown in jail? I mean, my ministry would be massive. That would be awesome. But again, we do not pray for these things, but we recognize that if they come, they produce a harvest. The blood of the martyrs is the seedbed for the church. There's this split going on. Why, Why is one group, our group, why is our group all of a sudden being persecuted? This is why. Because the world has has overplayed its hand and ramped up their agenda and their conquest for power. And at the very same time, this part of the church has finally understood that God cares about more than just our hearts and that Jesus is Lord of all. That he cares about politics. He cares about government. He cares about marketplaces. He cares about everything. And that Christ, perhaps you've heard it said, Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Yes and amen. But Christ, not Caesar, is actually head of everything. Ephesians 1.22 says that God has appointed him as the head of all things. The head of all things to the benefit of the church. Christ's headship, his lordship, his authority is not limited merely to his authority over the church. Christ is uniquely head of the church. The church is the only human institution for which Christ died. But Christ is not only head of the church. Christ is head of everything. That's why Romans 13 says that the government, the civil magistrate is what? A deacon of Christ. He is God's servant. Elders and deacons in the church serve God. Christ is the head of it. And Caesar serves God. Christ is the head of governments as well. He is the head of all things. Whether you submit to him or not, whether you love him or hate him, bless him or curse him, follow him or rebel, he is Lord of all. And when the church starts preaching that and people start living that and they actually begin to look at the law of God and the lordship of Christ and apply it to everything, They apply it to businesses. They apply it to schooling. They apply it to vaccines. They apply it to all these different things. Then all of a sudden, now the government, they never had a problem with us before. Now they have a problem. Because now we look like Jesus. 
A student is not above his teacher. A servant is not beyond his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Why has the church not been hated? Because the church has not looked like Jesus. But now, a remnant does. A remnant does. And here comes the persecution. And with our infinitely wise God, the persecution is the setting of the stage for our victory. Persecution today, victory tomorrow. Though the sorrow may last for the night, the joy comes in the morning. We will win. Their doom is sealed. And I rejoice. I rejoice in the privilege that God would count us worthy to suffer reproach for the name of His Son. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support.